This is Monocle On Design, a show where we unpack everything from architecture and craft to furniture and fashion. I'm Nick Manise. On today's program, a workshop visit to learn the intricacies and craft in creating globes. Architect Andre Chibik talks to us about the future of Czech design and we visit an installation that illuminates the history of Georgian light shows. All that coming up on Monocle On Design. Hello and welcome to today's show. We start in London, where, since 2008, Bellaby and Co. Globe Makers have been doing exactly what it says on the tin. From their workshop, they produce bespoke terrestrial, celestial and planetary orbs that chart the roots of explorers, family migration or whatever their clients desire. The company and this work is the subject of a new book published by Bloomsbury. Called The Globe Makers, The Curious Story of an Ancient Craft, it looks at the complexity of globe making, a discipline that fuses history, art, astronomy and physics. To find out more, this show's producer, Maylee Evans, headed down to the Bellaby & Co. Globemakers Workshop to meet its founder. I've kind of always been somewhat transfixed by globes, as many people are. It's something you, you get into at such a young age in your geography lessons. You will see a globe in there and it just starts a whole host of questions. My name is Peter Bellaby, and this is Bellaby & Co. Globe Makers, and we are a bespoke globe makers based in Stoke Newington in North London. This one here has got flora and fauna by the looks of it. Um, yes, Britannica edition. And so, and this one, um, this is our Gagarin version, so we, we add a bit of colour as a key for the painters, um, because it's quite complicated. When you started up way back in 2008, what was your vision at that time? Did you anticipate this is where it would grow? When I started in 2008, this was a three-month project to make a globe for my dad. And then I was going to go back into property developing. I'm kind of fortunate that this took so long to get going. And I got sucked into this because had I gone back into property developing, then I probably would now be bankrupt. We just allow things to happen and, and we try to keep ahead of the game. We have the cartography department keeping all our maps up to date and then adding personalizations for customers as they request then we have the making department who are the team who apply the gauze the surfboard shaped pieces of paper that fit from north pole to south pole and then we have the painting department and then we have a workshop department who create all our amazing wooden and metal bases and they also um, sub up as the shipping department in a sense. We have QCing going um, on across every single department. So everyone is responsible from QCing, from cartography to makers to painters to sales and marketing. This is actually um, the globe going to the Middle East um, and it's a Churchill globe, so they're so big. Once we get, get it up here, it stays in the same position, so it's, it's being painted here as well. Charting borders, deciding what goes into certain maps is maybe quite a contentious issue, particularly for shipping internationally. What's been your experience in, in that? To begin with, I was mainly shipping to countries where perhaps there is full freedom of speech. So if you want to make a globe and call every single country, you can. 
but there are quite a few countries where that is just not tolerated. And even democracies, India, for instance, will not allow us to ship a globe to India that doesn't have the correct border as they see it between India and Pakistan. China will not allow globes into China if Taiwan is depicted. It has to be Chinese Taipei. Interestingly, it's not the customers who um, who demand that. It's actually um, customs. They will just impound and destroy globes. There are odd, odd things as well. For instance, Morocco doesn't recognize Western Sahara. So we shipped a globe to an American diplomat uh, in Morocco. And obviously he is having conversations weekly with Moroccan diplomats. So he, he cannot have Western Sahara on the globe. It, it's very difficult. We want to be as apolitical as possible, but at the same time we are inevitably sucked into the fact that no one can be apolitical. So it's a really interesting element to what we do that we are drawn into, the political chaos of the world. You were self-taught in globe making and I was really interested in the fact that you're really keen to take on apprentices, train them up, give them a trade and something to aspire and become an expert and artist in it. What did you find the most difficult part of this whole making process to understand the nuances of, of this craft? Without doubt, the most difficult process to work out is how to apply the strips of paper to a sphere. I was actually talking to someone at the weekend who has been in, been in paper restoration and bookbinding for years. She couldn't work out how it was possible for us to put flat paper onto a sphere. I merely suggested she spend the next year and a half with me and I would teach her how to do it. And that's it. That's what it is. It, it's still an art. It's something that some people will be amazingly good at and some people won't. And it's very difficult to establish that when people come here to start their apprenticeships. You need patience, persistence. You need to not let it get you down because you can be doing this for six months and you can come in and you can try and make a globe and it can be as bad as the ones you made in your first month and you need to just be able to focus and not be taken down by that. The face-making department, so this... This is actually a special box that we're making. It's going to have watches, a watch in here, and this is a, a base that slides forward and holds a globe. So it's, okay. it's going to be amazing. We've talked a bit about the, the artistry, but there's also the engineering side and aspect and the importance of making sure that these globes are weighted properly, that they sit correctly. Tell me a little bit about, I guess, the precision needed to ensure that these, these items are perfect. <laughs> The most important thing to, to understand with what we're making is that we are shipping all over the world. So 90% of our orders are international orders. So we can't afford for things to fail. We literally cannot afford for things to fail, apart from the fact that even if our, all our orders were in the UK, I would not want things to fail. But the point is that makes us over-engineer everything. Any unit, any piece that we have in anything we make um, is designed to either last way longer than it needs to last or just be much stronger than it, the required strength it needs to be. The bearings that we use for the Churchill Globe, they would individually take the weight of me. 
and, and we're using five of them for 30 kilograms. So they're only using six kilograms, and yet they would take 60, 70 kilograms. So it's all very important to do that, to make sure that every single globe lasts as long as possible. There's no compromise on any materials. With the globe, in the traditional way they're made, where they spin on an axis, you will naturally, if you just create a whole North Pole and South Pole and then spin it on an axis, it will naturally have a, a heavy point in the sphere. It's impossible to fabricate something that is perfectly weighted. So we then have an elaborate process where we, well, to begin with, I would add lead weights, firstly on, on the outside to find out where they need to be, and then I drill holes into the sphere and then attach them onto the inside so that when the globe is spun, it naturally comes to a gentle halt and doesn't rock backwards and forwards. With many of our globes, they sit on roller bearings. Equally, um, they need to be nicely balanced so that they don't have a heavy point, so that they, they spin in a nice way. So there are little tricks like that. We have an amazing system of balancing the, the way we do now. In fact, it's, it's not that dissimilar to car wheel balancing. Things like that are important. The thing that struck me when I was in my initial search for a, just to buy a globe for my father was how poorly constructed everything was. They were very light, completely were was unbalanced, so they would all just lopsidedly move. And it just seemed such a waste that you can spend a lot of time making a globe and fail on quite a number of the issues so that that was the most important thing I, I literally had a list of every single thing I wanted to do and every single thing I wanted to achieve from it you mentioned earlier that a lot of these globes are charting explorer routes maybe histories of migration family routes are there any that have particularly stayed with you any of those narratives or stories that people have brought into their globe I think actually the, there's a recent one that really struck a chord and it was someone who's commissioned a globe for his family and it's going back about three or four generations and you see the migration of his great-grandparents across Europe and then on a boat across to America and you see the different grandparents at different stages and how eventually they meet and it's unusual to have something that allows you to really show that and really really important it's a fun thing for young children to see their family history and to understand where all their grandparents might have come from i think it's it's fascinating peter bellaby there in conversation with monocle's maylee evans the globe makers the curious story of an ancient craft is published by bloomsbury and available at all good bookstores now Since 2010, Czech architecture practice Chibik and Christoph have been delivering outstanding projects from their offices in Brno, Prague and London. It's work that I surveyed as part of a recent reporting trip covering design and architecture in Czechia for Monocle's November issue. And it's work that's also unpacked in the firm's first monograph. Called Crafting Character, it highlights 14 years of the studio's projects centering around themes including affordability, repurposing of used materials and community integration. To talk more about Czech design and the new book, the firm's co-founder, Andre Chibik, joined me at Midori House in London. I began by asking him what it means to be a designer in the heart of Czechia. To be an architect in Czechia means to be fortunate by living in this period of time 
because after Velvet Revolution in 1989, when I was four years old, there was a very strong generation of uh, designers and architects taking over the market because there was a newly built market in, in our countries. Previously, everything was owned by the state and uh, then everything was privatized. But this newly built private sector was established in every sector, including architecture and design practices. So that generation was very, very strong and powerful. They call themselves Public House in Brno and uh, Golden Eagles in Prague. So who's calling themselves this? The, the architects, that, that the first architects, generation of architects? Yeah, 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 the generation of architects in those two major cities in, in Czechia. They were extremely talented, extremely powerful and willing to design because, uh, as you can imagine, the 40 years of communism devastated completely the country and there was lots of opportunities, a lot to do. They did a great job and they were so strong that they a little bit eaten the, the next generation. So the people that were like 30 in 1989, 1990, yeah. they're the people that really started to dominate the architecture scene yeah. almost yeah. and overshadowing the, the people that came in underneath them. I think it's quite a natural thing if someone's very strong, the next generation is has not enough space to grow and to doesn't. express themselves. Our generation, as far as I was born, 1985, and you maybe experienced that, that like new wave in, in Czech architecture while visiting Czechia. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Personally, everyone seemed to be young. All these, all yeah. the best practices in, in Czechia were led by people in their 30s, which was, I guess, quite exciting and, and invigorating. That's nothing exceptional, I say, because. As far as those Golden Eagles and Public House architects from 90s, they already saturated and, and they already built their buildings and they slowly coming to be not that active anymore. And the next generation doesn't exist. It's quite easy to succeed for us as the youngest ones because uh, our background is slightly different to the previous generations. We were the first studying uh, when I came to the university, that was the year when Czechia became a member of European Union. I was fortunate to study abroad, me personally in, in Austria and then in Switzerland on ETH. I think this is very significant uh, change for maybe entire industry and entire society in the Czech Republic because we are luckily the first generation to be highly connected to other countries and other territories. So not, not only have you had, I guess, opportunities open up by there being, I guess, a gap in the design market, as it were, in, in Czechia for young architecture practices, but you're also young practices that are open to the rest of Europe in a way and, and the rest of the world in a way that your predecessors hadn't been. You've got this, I guess, global education and opportunity to work around the world. Why return to Czechia? Why come back to Brno and, and, and practice there? Because I believe there's lots of to do. There's lots of topics to deal with. Even after 33 years after the change, we're still lacking train stations, philharmonic halls, big stadiums. That's very significant for the Central Europe, in my opinion. Today I'm 38 years old architect and uh, right now we are building an ice hockey arena for 10,000 people. I believe it could be something exceptional for other markets because uh, the Western markets are occupied by those like uh, second, third generation family businesses and the tradition in this manner is well 
developed, but we are the ones who are able in this age take this huge responsibility to build such an enormous project. I saw the working model of that ice hockey arena. I've seen your studio and, and, the, and the conceptual side of things, but I've also seen your built projects. Can you walk us through a couple of them, in particular the, the Lahofer Winery, which I picked out as a, as a stop on our grand road trip across Czechia, kind of breaking up the, the southern part of the country. What's special about a, a project like that? There was a very special client. We approached the client. We saw in the local newspapers their um, information about their revenue and uh, how many bottles of wine they produce every year that they grow and they want to build a new winery. So for a young architect, it was something like a red button to push. And we approached them. We offered them our services that we are young, but we believe that we can sort out such typology. There was a meeting, we met a few sketches, not for free. I have to highlight that architects shouldn't work for free. I like that. I think that's all, important. All around the world, because if you want to pay fair wages to your employees, you have to work for money. We offered them some sketches. They paid a decent amount of money for those sketches. And we convinced them that we are the right ones to, to work with. And I think this proactivity is quite significant for the profession nowadays, because I, I believe that the profession is slightly changing from designers to public actors. This particular project of the Lahof Winery is a privately funded project, but there are other publicly funded, and, and I'm really happy that we balance uh, to work for public and private. So you're saying that architects need to be public actors. Can you explain that a little bit to me? What, what do you mean by that? They need to be taking an active role in shaping their cities, or, <coughs> or is there something else to it? As an architect, you could be a mediator of the debate, because today there are two camps, the general society and the people willing to build something or transform something. Sometimes there's uh, a clash between those two groups, and I think it's not necessarily. Uh, you shouldn't be a devil advocate. You should be the one who who's able to lead the debate of those two groups to achieve good profit for the people willing to build or transform something, but also create social impact for the communities living in the territory. If you moderate the debate and you use these several tools to, to create this debate, the result could be beneficial for both sides. So if, if we're talking about, I guess, the, the future of Czech design, is it, is it that, I guess, evolved role of the architect? Is that, is that a key part of it? The mediator and, and somebody that's also working with the community, working with their private client, finding a way to bring everyone together for an ultimately better built outcome? That's definitely our role. But uh, I think there are also different topics to share with the clients. Architects should be considered as agents of this change. We have to promote those important topics. We have to talk publicly about what kind of materials we should use for the buildings, that uh, we should preserve the built environment and not to demolish and build again. If we build something newly, it should have enormous added value. It should be definitely designed by, by architects. It shouldn't be designed by someone else without architecture education. And uh, it shouldn't be uh, fast food architecture. If we build buildings with the highest added value, I believe that uh, no one will take a risk to demolish it in 20 years. I mean, does your generation have a name and what, what legacy do you want to leave? I don't know if we should have a name because in the 90s there was completely different uh, environment for everything. The capitalism in the Central Europe was and, and democracy was uh, was freshly built. But I believe that the generation, as I stated, it's very strong, is focused mainly not on the form but on the topics. 
because we do consider several topics very important. Those topics in our hierarchy higher than extraordinary architectural forms. What are those topics? Maybe this is the perfect jumping off point for your new book. <laughs> uh, thank you. Thank you for the bridge. It's exactly what we tried to achieve while building our first monograph. We were completely lost in those 500 projects we did within the first 12 years. And the selection was almost impossible. What should be in the book and what's not? And then we realized that uh, there's uh, a red line coming through all the projects and those projects are represented by the title of the book. We call it Crafting Character. What's very important for every project we do, that uh, we like to characterize everything placed into our architecture. The Crafting Character is described by eight topics and illustrated by 14 selected projects. And those topics are from adaptive reuse, prefabricated modularity, affordable housing, self-initiated transformations. We consider very important materiality in, in the project's entire debate about usage of timber in contemporary architecture. I believe those topics are on a table of every contemporary practice. And I think those topics could lead into the better solution for our built environment. Architecture is not the building industry only, right? It's not about building buildings. It's about trying to achieve the highest added value into the built environment. Because we as creative minds, we are the authors and we are able to combine lots of things together and to achieve the best quality for the site, for the program, for the typology, for the community that will live and use those buildings. Andre Chibik there. And for more architecture and design from Czechia, check out Monocle's November issue. You can also pick up a copy of Chibik and Kristoff's monograph, Crafting Character, at all good bookstores now. We stay in London for the last instalment of today's show. Here, the Sir John Soane's Museum, named after its owner and architect, is a house of hidden treasures in the UK capital. Its latest exhibition, Georgian Illuminations, explores the intricacies of an impressive form of entertainment from this period, that of the light show. These often included impressive temporary architectural structures, which are being explored through prints, drawings and studies in the exhibition. The showcase also features a contemporary light show, with a newly commissioned illumination casting light on the Sohn building's facade. Monocle's Lucrezia Motta headed to the installation to meet the artist behind it. A drawing for John Sohn is a large-scale light installation projected on the facade of the Sohn Museum each evening. Intricate geometric shapes dance around the stone to create a modern light show. Installation artist Nayan Kulkarni was commissioned to create the piece to illustrate the museum's latest exhibition on Georgian-era light shows. Nayan explains how these bright displays came about. A series of transitions in, um, in kind of post-industrial uh, European societies where there was more leisure and then more of a demand for entertainment within that leisure space. So, of course, the theatres and, um, and the entertainment interiors would actually facilitate that, and they were also places where the different strands of society would, would come together. The externalisation of, of, of entertainment and symbolic, the symbolic relation between architecture and 
the subjects in the city was realised through the general gas lighting of the streets. This new demand for public entertainment was fed by the ruling class, which saw it as a discreet means to showcase its wealth and power. The relationship between grand homes and um, the general population is kind of reinforced in a kind of in, in sorts of lots of kind of dynamic and really pleasurable ways sometimes. But nevertheless, the relationship between the facade of power architecture, to be clumsy, and the general population is kind of reinforced and celebrated and then looked upon. And I guess it's a movement from royal celebratory power to a particular class-related power. So just simply to turn a light on in the front of a building establishes your status within civil society, but there's also a demand to do so. The installation constantly reflects between the past and the present, from the techniques used to the final result. When uh, Louise uh, approached me, the curator of the, the show, to think about making a piece here, I thought, well, could I use these light instruments that I've been developing over the few years here? Because not only Soane's, but many of, many of Soane's contemporaries would have been completely familiar with the techniques. They would have been astonished by the lamps and by the, the, the kind of control of the lamps, but everything else they would have been familiar with. So I limited the palette, a maximum of 12 slides, silhouette slides, and that's it. And produce a thing that's at its core, 12 drawings that are then uh, etched into glass and then used as negative or positive images as part of the construction of the images that play across the the facade. Then the next process is to look at the facade as a kind of almost an excessive egotistical addition to this building. Although the, the Soames' use of very restrained stone colouring and very refined detailing, hardly any at all, and then these kind of very interesting sort of gothic gestures in these kind of fragmentary floating elements, uh, it's still very bombastic. And perhaps at the time it would have been more bombastic than, than I can read, because it's a refined, tasteful thing to me. For Nayan, the Soane's extensive archives, including the works of artist and Soane contemporary Joseph Gandhi, were a major source of inspiration. And I paid particular attention to looking at Gandhi's drawings, both his own paintings and the paintings and drawings he made on, but I saw some details in there which I... I was quite surprised that using gold ink as mortar to produce these impossible sparkles on, on brick facades. Great technique, by the way. Give it gold, people will buy it. It was literally, you could see how they were encoding both sunlight and value in mortar lines. Because you wouldn't see that in a, in a reproduction. So on the table, you go, hang on a minute, what's that? It's glinting. Oh, it's kind of... Right, OK. And then I looked across as I went through the drawings again and saw this really simple technique of little gold embellishments. The project was also the chance for Nayan to revisit the place he first saw as a postgraduate student. Well, the first uh, museum I visited um, when I moved to London in 97 was this museum as a, as a master's student. So I'd never heard of the place. An artist called Gary Holder took uh, the, the new cohort of MA sculpture students here. It starts a process of thinking about what I was doing at the time. 
the unique atmosphere of the zone sparked an interest in how the light's relationship to the space can alter it completely. But what's one thing certain is that the orientation of reflected and direct light and its movement in color through the, the cycle of the sun is, is just wonderful. Soft, and when you really look at it, you can see little dances of light off very specifically placed mirrors where reflection of architect, reflection of light, and reflection of you looking becomes all part of a kind of dance. There's a choreography here, which was the kind of first lesson when I was a um, um, master's student. The complexities of light are at the center of Noyan's work, from the elements that make it to how the audience reacts. So I'm interested in light because it, it, it engages directly and it would appear on the first instance to be not semiotic or not language. But of course, it's a very sophisticated language. But all light, particularly all project or artificial light, or is produced in very specific wavelengths and tones, if you like. And they want to be white. That's where they're going. You start adding more, they become white. So unlike with painting, where it turns into mud, with light, it's always um, adding towards a kind of the mush, if you like, is white and the super mush is the sunlight, where it's all spectrums. So there's a kind of thing in, in lighting which moves towards a, a kind of a kind of simplicity. Nayan Kulkarni's reworking of traditional Georgian architecture into a modern art piece invites the audience to look at something which seems so familiar in a completely new way. From Monocle in London, I'm Lucrezia Motta. The exhibition, Georgian Illuminations, is on at the Sir John Soane Museum in London until the 7th of January 2024. It's there that you can catch Nayan Kulkarni's light installation on the building's facade, which will be visible nightly from dusk until 11pm. And that's all for today's show. For more design stories, listen to our five-minute midweek bonus show, Monocle on Design Extra, which airs on Thursdays. And if you enjoy print, then do pick up a copy of Monocle magazine as well. It's on all good newsstands now. Today's episode was produced and edited by Maylee Evans. I'm Nick Manise, and you can reach me on nm at monocle.com. Thanks for listening.